And we have two of the leading experts to talk on this subject, so we are really, really lucky. Uh, Professor Keith Horton, who is a governing body fellow here at the college, is Professor of Psychiatry and Director of the Centre for Research at, uh, sorry, for Suicide Research at Oxford University. You ha have his bios in your pack, so I'm not going to take up their time in the presentation to read that to you, but just see how much work he's done. He's prolific, he really is the leading expert on this. And he's coming along here today with Professor Sina Fazel, who's a Wellcome Trust Senior Research Fellow, again here at Oxford, and an honorary consultant in forensic psychiatry. So um, if you're in any doubt as to whether we have the leading experts to talk in this final session, you are no longer in doubt. I will put two cups there for you to help yourself to water and hand over the floor to you. I think he's going to, to start right. with Thanks. Well, thanks very much, Caroline. I, I hope you haven't had too many muffins. We don't want you all dozing off. Um, and uh, I'm glad you called us the Centre for Suicide Research. In the BBC programme recently, they presented some of our data and they called us the Centre for Suicide, which I thought wasn't a, wasn't a very, uh, uh, very helpful. Um, so we're actually going to talk a bit beyond uh, just near-lethal uh, self-harm. So we're going to try and... Uh, give you an overview about suicide and self-harm in prisoners uh, based particularly on uh, some of our work. Um, I'm, uh, as Carolyn said, I'm, I'm very much involved in suicide research. Um, I'm not a prisons expert, although I've done a quite, quite a bit of research on uh, prisoners, uh, whereas uh, Sina is very much the uh, forensic uh, expert. Uh, as well as um, generally, as well as uh, having a lot of experience in relation to suicide and self-harming prisoners. So, um, just by way of introduction, um, Sina's going to talk about the extent of suicide and self-harm uh, in prisons and, and trends in these over time, and also about risk factors uh, for both self-harm and uh, suicide in prisoners. Uh, and then I'm going to focus on <clears throat> some uh, joint studies we did <clears throat> using the near-lethal suicide attempt approach, which I'll explain uh, later. And then I'm going to say a, a bit about um, uh, prevention of uh, self-harm and suicide in prisons. So I'm going to hand over to uh, Zina to tell you more about uh, trends in suicide and self-harm. Thank you. Um... So, um, just to put everything in context, this is a map of incarceration rates around the world. Um, be nice to, I mean, I suppose it would be interesting to compare it to what, what, what we know about mortality in prisons. We don't know enough about mortality in prisons, but it's just important just to see where the um, just just to see where the prison populations are largest in absolute numbers. And you can, as you can see, it's the US and China. Um, UK also slightly overrepresented, as you know, the largest prison population per head um, in, in Western Europe. Um, I mean, prisons come up, uh, come up quite a lot in the media today. I don't know if you listened to Women's Hour, but uh, I did, and there was a long section on um, um, some of the work being done to reduce reoffending in women prisoners. It was very interesting, actually. Um, and they had a number of experts on, and it, it comes up repeatedly actually in in in, in that program, but also many programs. And um, here's a great piece in the New York Review of Books, a review of um, a couple of you know statistical <laughs> reports essentially, but um, fantastically reviewed just to highlight the problem in the states of um, uh, particularly victimisation of uh, and, and highlights the. The, the problem of victimisation in, in people with uh, mental health problems as well. Um, I mean, the, the other area, the other sort of wider context is um, increasing awareness that yeah, a lot of people in prison who shouldn't be. I mean, that was a big theme today in, in the piece on, on, on women's prisons and has been for, for decades about women in prison. But now it's also moving over to... Um, uh, many men also in prison who shouldn't be there and, and often it's because there's um, lack of alternatives sometimes or maybe um, um, one way of interpreting sentencing policy. Um, so a couple of questions I'm going to tackle uh, in the first part of my presentation are what do we just know about suicide rates? I'm going to compare it to the general population um, and then um, how do they compare 
across different countries where we have reliable information and um, what can that tell us about some of the factors associated with suicide? Um, uh, so, I mean, um, we, we, we first um, looked at this about 10 years ago and we, we did a piece um, where we looked at England and Wales and we find, found that it was five times higher than the general population and it had been going up um, compared to the general population over time. The BBC reported it. No one else reported it. I remember the BBC reporter, um, um, is Adam Brimmeler, he's still the guy, the health guy. He said, he said, because I was about to go away, he said, don't go away, because there'll be lots of press interest, and there wasn't any. It was just him. <laughs> and I remember cancelling my flight, because I was supposed to go away for... Uh, um, <laughs> I remember delaying, but there was nothing. It was just silence, but anyway, there was the one piece. <laughs> um, so... Um, uh, what's happened uh, recently is there's been an, um, an increase in, in self-inflicted deaths. I mean, that's how it's defined in, in England and Wales, which is a slightly broader definition than some other countries. Um, so there, there, there was a little bit of a decrease, um, and then uh, it seems to have gone up, and that actually is also consistent if you work that out per head of... Um, per, per, per prisoner, so if you work it out as a rate rather than absolute numbers. Um, so in terms of relative, um, relative general population, um, so here you would take one as, um, as there being no difference with the general population. And as you can see, um, these are a selection of countries. Um, Keith and I did some work on these countries because we uh, had reliable information on their deaths in custody and suicide rates in custody. Um, and also we, we were able to get reliable information on general population um, suicide rates for the same age bands, um, so quite narrow age bands to reflect the age structure of prisons. So, um, as you can see, I mean, it, it, it's around four to six. This is in men, it's, like, it's, it's higher in women actually. Um, and there are some differences, and what, what's interesting is, is, is what explains those differences. Um, so, why, for instance, does uh, Finland, Ireland, New Zealand Possibly Canada, Australia have, have slightly lower rates than, than maybe Norway, England, Wales. Um, in, in women prisoners, like I just mentioned, it's, it's higher, so you can see the scale is different. Previously, um, the scale um, was, uh, was up to 10, and now the scale is, um, is in 10s. Um, and that reflects the fact that in, in, um, in, in the general population, the, the, the rates of suicide in women are low. And so any, any suicides in, in prisoners will, will be reflected in quite a, a large excess compared to the general population. Um, and you, can't take, you can't read too much into differences between countries here because we're not talking about a lot of numbers. So there's, relative, there's some uncertainty about um, differences between these countries. But you, the, the general picture, though, is one that it's, it's higher... As, an, as a proportion, uh, to the, as, an, as a comparison to the general population as it is in men. Um, and I just, I, I pulled up some more recent numbers. This is a bit of an sort of ugly slide, I'm sorry. But it's, um, it's a European Union project where they're trying to compile suicide in, information on all European projects, uh, all European prisons. And um, what's interesting about this is, I mean, I don't trust all the numbers, but... But what's interesting is it gives you sort of where, where countries are on a sort of percentile basis for, for deaths in custody and this is suicides in custody. And um, I just I, I bring up um, the UK because it, it's, it's in the, the top half, possibly the top quarter. Uh, as of, This is per 10,000 prisoners, that, that number. And you can see France and Belgium are, 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 are even, even higher rates than the uh, UK. Um, and then some other countries have lower rates. Um, but as I say, there, there, there may be some problems about how deaths in custody are classified in those countries. Um, so another way of looking at it, I mean, if, if, if you're not very, if, if you're, if you're um, uncertain about how people classify suicides, another way is just looking at mortality. Um, and um, the, the issue about mortality is that actually a lot of mortality, as you can see, the, the darker boxes or the higher mortality rates, I mean, a lot of that will be explained by infectious diseases rather than by misclassification of, of suicides um, as, 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 as natural deaths. So um, 
it's sort of helpful, but it isn't helpful at the same time. <laughs> it's an alternative. I mean, if you want to take a sort of European picture of deaths in custody, it gives you um, some impression, but I, I'm not sure how easy it is to interpret. So you see Belgium and Portugal have an excess of deaths in custody, and is that, is that because actually um, uh, there's, there's a problem with suicide, which tends to be about half the deaths in custody, or is that because of something else going on? In, in, in those prisons um, and so the, 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 the next step really in our work was trying to understand why there's a difference between these countries and um, one of the um, uh, hypotheses is that it's related to suicide in general population <coughs> so if you have a, um, a high suicide rate in general population that's reflected with a higher suicide rate than other countries in, in, in prisons and this is one way of plotting it so here's the suicide rate in the general population and here's suicide rate in prisons and um, if that was true everything would, 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 would fit very neatly on this line, it doesn't so um, actually that, that, that's a bit that, that's actually a bit messy and that suggests that it isn't associated with um, um, general population suicide rate. So it's not just people importing um, a risk into prison, there's also something else going on. Um, um, so that's, that's on a sort of, um, on a broad sort of national level. What do we know about individual level factors? Um, and individual level factors, um, we did a review a few years ago, um, I don't think it's been updated, um, uh, and the, um, what's interesting is that the um, on, the, on an individual level, the, some of the risk factors are modifiable, so they're, they're, they're often things um, which can be changed and therefore potentially could reduce suicide rates in prison. Um, the the uh, single cell um, um, previous suicide attempt, psychiatric diagnosis, being on medication is just, is just a marker of having a psychiatric diagnosis. Um, and having a history of alcohol problems. So some of them are potentially modifiable, and that's um, uh, good news in some ways. Um, uh, the things that are inversely associated with suicide are, are things you can't change, really. Um, ethnicity and, and the sentence you get given. Um, and um, a couple of interesting things that were different from what you'd expect. So we know in the general population... Um, being married and being employed are protective factors, but actually in prison they were um, uh, risk factors, so they increased your risk. Um, and that's sort of interesting because, and, and our, our view was that it, that's probably something to do with the number of loss events you experience when you go to prison. So the more things you lose, the higher your risk. They weren't very strong risk factors, um, so they were, they were um, uh, not as strong as these. Um, but they um, are interesting because they differ. They're, they're in a diff different direction where everything else was in the same direction as you'd expect. Um, and finally, <coughs> self-harm is... Uh, I just mentioned here, I mean, previous attempts there being self-harm because I'm going to go on and talk a little bit about self-harm now. Um, and, and I think the whole, the whole issue... I mean, one of the... Being a psychiatrist, obviously, these, the, 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 the fact that um, the psychiatric diagnosis and... Um, psychiatric problems as a risk factor is important and um, there's some, you know, again in increasing interest in this area about mentally ill people being wrongly placed in prisons guardian piece, which I'm not sure about the title, but saying people are more, in the States it's very clear there's, 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 there's many more times pe more people with severe mental illness in prisons than there are in all public and private hospitals in America, I and mean, that's very clear and you can look at state by state, people have worked it out. In the UK, I'm not, I'm not so sure about that. Um, so actually, this, this, this married business that I, should, I told you about, the, the risk factor wasn't very strong. That, I mean, the BBC picked up on that one. I didn't change my holiday plans at that point. Um, um, and interesting enough, again, it was the only, <laughs> only media outlet that really picked up on this story. So they, um, there you go. Um, and then um, I'm going to talk a bit about self-harm, because I think it's... Um, it was um, a neglected area um, uh, which causes quite a lot of morbidity um, in prisons. Um, and we did a study that was published um, now about a couple of years ago looking at self-harm in England and Wales. Um, 
I mean, in summary, I'm not going to talk about all the findings, but in summary, it was, it was quite common, it was often repeated, and um, it was linked to suicide mortality, like I said, um, and that there are some implications for um, prevention, which, which Keith will touch on, um, uh, which I think are important in terms of not just reducing self-harm, but also suicide mortality. Um, in terms of the numbers, I mean, the absolute numbers are huge, um, so, I mean, the, the impact on, on, obviously, on individuals, but also on the prison and, and on public health hospitals is enormous. Um, uh, so 100, about 140,000 episodes over the period we looked at, which was a six-year period. Um, what that meant is if you take an, a, a year, um, about one in five women prisoners um, and, and about 5 to 6% of male prisoners were self-harming in, in a 12-month period inside prison. Um, so really quite, quite high rates. Um, and that was picked up. I mean, you know, one of the few slightly sort of more... Um, what can, how can I put it? Sort of more sort of caring stories in the mail about prisoners um, came out of this research... Um, you know, it actually was, it, it had a, a, a positive spin on the importance of, of health. Yeah. Uh, hi. When you're talking about self-harming, can you give an idea of the range of different activities that you've met? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's things like cutting, um, hang, well, self-strangulation, um, some overdoses. Um, they're, they're the main ones, if I can remember correctly. Um, this is over time actually since um, I mean we work with the prison service um, and, and one of the things that came out of our work was that there's a small group of women that self-harm over a hundred times a year and actually that um, focusing on that high risk population would reduce the numbers and interesting enough the numbers in women went down the numbers of men have actually gone up have continued to go up gradually but the number of women went, went down quite a bit and it may be that the, Prison service actually did focus on this high-risk population of women. Um, this is a ratio of um, uh, number of episodes per prisoner. So there's um, um, it's, it's much more prominent in the women estate. Um, so there, there, there was um, yeah more than 100 episodes a year, 102 women. Um, so that's a, a, a good a, you know very important. Um, targeted approach to um, reduce self-harm could focus on, on this group of women. So here's a, your question about um, the, the, the methods being used, cutting and scratching, strangulation, ligature, um, and there's some general differences, ingestion to overdoses and, and um, hanging and other methods. Who's most at risk? So what are the risk factors? Um, in our study, we didn't have information on health. We didn't have health records. So most of these uh, sociodemographic and chronological factors. Um, but what that does is it at least, you know, it can provide some information about high-risk populations and um, also, as you'll see, some population about who goes on to die from suicide as well, so who's the highest at risk of suicide. Um... The other interesting thing was there was quite a bit of clustering, so that um, um, uh, there, there, there was, um, particularly in the, in, in the women's estate, but also in the men's estate, there was um, some clustering of self-harm episodes across space and time. Um, and um, that also has implications about how you manage self-harm, because obviously on a, on a, on a wing, if someone's self-harming, you need to think about the other people who vulnerable but haven't self-harmed yet not just the person who's self-harming um, in terms of suicide what it means in terms of suicide well there were um, in, in, this, in the cohort we looked at there were 109 suicides and um, among people who self-harm that, that, that there's a very high risk of, of suicide um, and there's some factors which Distinguished the group who died from suicide from those who didn't. Um, and I think the one that is probably easiest to remember is the fact that there's more than five episodes a year in the women. Um, 
uh, that's a group at high risk of dying from suicide um, in, in prison. Um, what about the location in the prison? I'm thinking especially about segregation units. Yeah. We, I, don't, I don't think we, we had a lot of information on that. Um, um, so people, do, I mean, they don't spend a lot of time in segregation units as well, so it would be quite difficult to know actually the impact it has. You probably need even longer period than we had to really study that. I'm, I'm not sure, actually, the, they use segregation a lot in women's prisons. I'm, I'm not sure. Someone else will have to help me with that. And a lot of the women in segregation units are found just from all Really? Yeah. But, but is it used widely in the women's estate? I mean, it's obviously used in the men's estate, but I, I don't know the extent to which it's used in the women's estate. It's used, it's used is it? It's used, is it? It's used, is it? It is, is it? Okay. So, in summary, um, self harm, um, common, possibly uh, neglected. Um, um, uh, at least from a research perspective, it seems to be neglected. Um, repetition is common, there's some evidence of contagion, and it's associated risk of self harm and suicide. Over to Keith. Okay, well, thank, thanks very much, Celia. Um, we, um, we were thinking about um, what work we might be able to do to understand uh, the problem of suicide in prisoners um, in a bit more depth. And uh, one of the approaches that um, uh, has been used in studying suicide in general is to study people who, if you like, were as close to suicide as they could be but didn't die. Uh, so that you're able to actually talk to them, um, ask them about their histories, invent, uh, investigate their psychology, and so on and so forth. So we call that the uh, near-lethal suicide attempt approach. Um, and uh, um, we decided to apply this uh, within uh, prisons. It's actually quite a difficult approach to use in the community in general, uh, actually locating people who have made very high risk uh, suicide attempts and uh, getting them into studies proves very difficult, surprisingly difficult but of course prisons have an advantage in terms of research and people are there and staying there and uh, are generally uh, relatively willing to be uh, involved in, in these sorts of studies so um, we did uh, two studies um, on, on using uh, this approach okay um, the uh, first one was a study of men, uh, the second was a study of, of women, and we used exact, more or less exactly the same approach in, uh, for the two uh, gender studies. Uh, so we, we looked at uh, 60 men who'd made near-lethal attempts uh, and 60 controls who had not made near-lethal attempts while in, in prison. Um, that was a study that um, Adrian Rivlin worked on with us for her DPhil, um, and then uh, a study of uh, women, similar design, uh, and this was uh, worked. Uh, the, the main worker on this was uh, uh, Dr. Lisa Marzano, a postdoc, um, who came with already quite a bit of experience of prisons research. And um, what we did was to try and interview uh, the prisoners within a month of their near lethal uh, acts. Um, the recruitment process was often a bit clunky, uh, hence we had to, had to allow up to a month uh, uh, to, to um, get them. It would be nice to have seen them closer to the time of the act, uh, if possible, but um, what with getting consent and so on, uh, a month was reasonable. And uh, we just included uh, people who were prisoners who were aged um, 18 years and uh, over. Okay, so just, I'm just going to summarise the the methods very, very briefly. Um, it was based on uh, interviews, um, in, in-depth interviews. Uh, we, we asked about a lot about um, uh, what had happened to the prisoners uh, before they came into prison, going right back to their family backgrounds, their family history, family history of suicidal behaviour, suicide, attempted suicide. Um, we asked about... Uh, uh, life events, both early life events uh, re and more recent ones uh, that had occurred before coming to prison, such as abuse, um, 
violence, uh, um, bereavements, and so on. There's a very high rate of bereavement in this group, particularly uh, in, 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 in the women. Um, we asked about criminal, obviously about their criminal history uh, and about their psychiatric history. In terms of um, uh, them being in prison, we, wa- we wanted to uh, get a good idea about psychiatric disorder, so we used uh, a clinical diagnostic schedule to uh, screen for various psychiatric disorders and also for um, antisocial personality disorder. And then we looked at a range of psychological and uh, uh, personality uh, factors um, uh, as well using uh, interview uh, standardised interview schedules. Um, we asked them about their the social environment of being, or social environmental factors in terms of being uh, in prison. Uh, for example, they bullied in prison uh, and uh, so on. And then we tried to build up a picture of what we call the suicidal process, which is rather than thinking about a suicidal act as you know something just occurs in time, to be thinking longitudinally. Um, how does suicidal ideation develop? Um, what, what leads up to, to a suicidal act? Uh, what determines choice of method and so on and uh, so forth? So that's a very brief uh, overview of the, um, of the way we, uh, we, we did the study. Um, so I'm going to summarise some of the results. Um, and so these are comparisons between the prisoners who made near-lethal attempts and the control prisoners. And uh, what I'm going to present is just uh, differences which were statistically significant. Um, so prisoners who made near-lethal attempts were uh, mostly white, single and under 30 years of age. Uh, they tended to be on their, no- their normal prison wing location rather than uh, segregated um, uh, settings. Um, they generally had high suicidal intent, by which we mean um, when they carried out the act, um, how determined did they seem to be to tr- that the act would end in death? Uh, and we use this particular scale called the suicide, in, uh, suicide intent scale to assess this. Um, and they usually attempted, uh, um, they used hanging mostly, hanging and uh, self-strangulation. Now, um, so this is just the characteristics of the nearly lethal cases rather than differences between them and the, ca- and the controls, which I'll come to in a moment. Now, they have in prison, as you'll probably know, this um, policy called ACT, uh, A-C-C-T, which you can see down at the bottom here, if, uh, means uh, assessment, caring, custody and teamwork, which is the uh, policy approach that's used for... Uh, prisoners who are thought to be at risk uh, in the prison setting. So they may be on act for a period of time while they're thought to be at risk. Now, of the men who engaged in near-lethal suicide attempts, 40% were considered to be at risk. In other words, 70%, uh, 60% hadn't been identified as being uh, at-risk uh, prisoners. Whereas for the women... Uh, nearly all of them were on, uh, on act at the time of their self-harm episodes, 88% of them, um, so a very high proportion. Okay, so now comparing the, um, the individuals who made the near-lethal uh, suicide attempts compared to the controls, and just looking at both genders, these are findings we found in both genders, uh, the cases were more likely to have prior convictions, um, so they had a, a, a multiple forensic history, if you like, compared with the control. More likely to have a multiple forensic history compared with the controls. They were more likely to have engaged in violent, been committed for violent offences. Uh, on the other hand, they'd spent less time in prison than the controls, uh, and in the and, and also in the, their current prison. And uh, we know that um, suicides one period of risk for suicide in prisons is early after reception and it looked as though the same applied for these uh, near lethal uh, episodes rather, rather than later on. Um, they're also more likely than controls to have had a history uh, at any time of self-harm 
um, or suicide attempts uh, and to have a history of prior suicide attempts or self-harm in prison. But don't forget, we selected the controls as not having a history of near lethal uh, suicide attempts. But they, 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 the cases um, uh, had uh, more often uh, self-harmed or attempted suicide or both uh, outside prison. Um, they, oops, sorry. They, they uh, also uh, more often received psychiatric inpatient care um, prior to coming into prison and also outpatient psychiatric treatment. And this is sort of one of the main findings, in, and that is that all of the female prisoners who engaged in near lethal self-harm and all but <coughs> one of the males had at least one current psychiatric disorder diagnosis. Often there were multiple diagnoses, as you'll see, see in a moment. So psychiatric uh, disorder is a, is a very major uh, factor in this. Of course, we know in relation to suicide in the community, uh, psychiatric disorder is very important. It isn't the sole determinant of suicide, but it is an important component. And uh, if you look across... Um, studies that have been done of people who've died by suicide and average the results, excluding China, interestingly, um, then you have a figure around 93% of uh, people who die by suicide are thought to have a, a psychiatric disorder, be it ha uh, whether, ir irrespective of whether it was diagnosed before they died or um, is a diagnosis made when, after talking to relatives and so on and getting information about their state before death, but it seems even, even more common in uh, people engaging in these near lethal suicide attempts in prison, and therefore we assume in people who die by suicide in prison. Um, now, looking at the two genders um, separately, the, uh, the, actually the findings are very similar uh, for males and females, but uh, the males who uh, engaged in near lethal suicide attempts were more likely than their controls to have a diagnosis of depression, psychosis, anxiety disorder, uh, drug misuse disorder, and to have multiple diagno uh, diagnoses, that is, two or more diagnoses. Um, the women were more likely to have a diagnosis of depression, anxiety disorder, and a major feature here was post-traumatic stress disorder. Over half had a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, often related to being on the receiving end of violence, um, um, uh, attacks prior to coming into, uh, into prison, uh, uh, abuse experiences, sexual abuse experiences were extremely common. Uh, they're also more likely to have a diagnosis of psychosis and again, uh, multiple uh, diagnoses compared with the, um, with the controls. Um, also, in, in terms of, psycho, of psychological characteristics, the, um, both the males and the females uh, had, had uh, significantly higher levels uh, measured on, on uh, psychometric scales of aggression, impulsivity, hostility, hopelessness, and uh, childhood trauma. And they, had, they also had significantly lower self-esteem and... Uh, uh, self-reported social support. So generally, um, the, the individuals engaging in near lethal suicide attempts um, differed markedly in terms of their uh, psychology as well as their psychiatry, if you like, uh, from, from the uh, controls. Um, in terms of prior life events, um, the males who engaged in near lethal attempts, uh, um, nearly two-thirds of them had a history of being bullied. 60% um, uh, had a family history of suicide or self-harm, which is incredibly high compared with what you find in, in people in the general population. 60% uh, or 58% had a history of homelessness. And... Um, 43% of them have been in local authority care at some time. Uh, in terms of life events in the women, um, four out of five had a history of sexual abuse, incredibly high rates of sexual abuse. 
Three quarters of the history of domestic violence, over half had been in local authority care, uh, a third had experienced an extraordinary high figure, the death of a partner and or a child, their own child. Um, extraordinary high, uh, high figures. Um, and, and a quarter had a family history of suicide. It's not self-harm, it's just the suicide, which again is uh, extraordinarily high compared to what you find not only in their controls, but in the, uh, obviously, much, much higher than you'd find in the uh, general population. So one can sort of generate a model, uh, I don't know how helpful it is, of pathways for suicidal behaviour in prisoners. And this is based on a model we, we use in, the jet, in uh, relation to suicide and self-harm in the general population. I'm not going to go over all these points, but one obviously has to think about genetic factors being relevant, genetic factors related to uh, maybe uh, aggression, uh, impulsivity, um, psychiatric disorder, uh, early life events uh, and traumas. Um, uh, and so one pathway may be through psychiatric disorder, another one may be through uh, psychological characteristics of individuals which make them at higher risk of engaging in suicide or self-harm, perhaps when exposed to a psychiatric disorder or other, uh, other um, factors. Down at the bottom here, if you can see it, um, it's important obviously to think about negative life events, uh, as I've uh, just highlighted, and uh, um, poor social support, uh, which may again may contribute to psychiatric disorder um, and to um, psychological experiences. Uh, obviously, a history of previous self-harm is very important. And as Sina said, exposure to suicidal behaviour in other people, we know this from a lot of studies now, that can be uh, extremely uh, important. And um, when Sina talked about the clustering we found for self-harm, some of you may have seen a note there that was particularly relevant to first episodes of self-harm. In other words people were likely to engage in a first episode of self-harm when exposed to uh, self-harm by other people. Uh, so it may be exposure in prison, in the family. Um, we also know in the general population that exposure through the media, uh, dramatic reporting or portrayal of suicidal behaviour in the media can be extremely important. So all of this may lead to thoughts of self-harm or suicide, um, and then the availability of method becomes crucial. And uh, um, very, put very simply, if uh, uh, the method that's available and is chosen is more dangerous, you're more likely to die, and if it's less dangerous, then you're more likely to uh, uh, survive. And this is in interesting in relation to the prison environment, because it's a very controlled environment, um, uh, but people tend to use methods because they can't very easily get hold of medication. As Sina said, ingestions, uh, while they're quite common, they're not nearly as common as we find for self-harm in the general population. So they tend to turn to methods that they can use, um, and this may be cutting, which might be very dangerous cutting, or strangulation and, and uh, hanging uh, using materials that they can get hold of in, in the prison setting. Okay, so just to briefly summarise the, the study of neolethal um, attempts, so uh, there appears to be a... I mean, I'm always worried about this of, because you find a figure of, you know, 44% of men were on act, which means that, you know, f uh, whatever, 50, whatever it is, 56% weren't, um, that you, one can say, well, suicide risk identification is poor, but... It, you know, there's a gap there, if we can just put it like that. Whereas for the women, um, uh, most of them were, were identified as at risk. Um, and uh, there's obviously a problem of uh, management of uh, self-harm in women, as, um, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, one's dealing with people with, a com with complex needs and comorbidity of psychiatric and, and personality uh, issues. Um, and one can think in terms of unmet need in relation to psychiatric disorder in that only just over a third of the male prisoners who 
um, were um, prescribed antidepressants, um, sorry, who had a diagnosis of depression had been prescribed antidepressants, whereas most of the women who we identified as having uh, a depressive disorder were actually receiving antidepressants. Um, and of the women who engaged in, um, in uh, near-lethal self-harm um, and had a psychiatric disorder, which they all did, uh, only 43% had regular contact with a mental health professional. Um, so there's, a, there's another gap there between uh, the psychopathology, if you like, and, uh, um, and uh, what we found out about and, and what, what was actually being provided. Okay, so t- to finish with, uh, just, I'll just say a bit about um, prevention um, of uh, self-harm and suicide um, in, in the prison setting. I'm just going to cover this uh, uh, fairly... Um, uh, Briefly, but as you saw from the figures that Cena presented to you, unfortunately, um, the, 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 the suicide prevention and prevention of self-harm is, is way from being achieved in the uh, uh, prison setting, and things at the moment look as though they're getting worse, which is something we might pick up in the discussion, because I think it, there's some important uh, issues to why that may be happening. Um, so if you think about approaches to prevention... Uh, put very simply, you can think about um, things that you can do for all prisoners that might reduce risk in the prison population, so what we might call population approaches, and then uh, if you can identify the high-risk uh, prisoners, what you can do in terms of targeted uh, interventions focused on that group. It's also very important to think about, uh, as Sina said, what happens before going into prison and, and whether people are going to the right place given their needs. And then, of course, it's also very important to think about what happens after people leave prison because that's another time of uh, high risk. So if we, if we think about population approaches, um, one thing we certainly need is uh, needed is very accurate, reliable and, and transparent data collection on self-harm and suicide. And I must say, I think the prison service has done well on this in this country. Um, the, the suicide, the way they recorded suicides as um, uh, six self-inflicted deaths, as, as Sina said, that means they don't wait until there's a coroner's inquest. Uh, they make a judgment as to whether it's likely to be a self-inflicted death because um, and, and, a coroner's inquest may, uh, may not take place till several months later. So they have good, up-to-date, immediate data on uh, likely suicides. And I'm pleased also that they collect pretty good data on self-harm. And I'm very pleased with this because we've been monitoring self-harm for several decades now up at the John Radcliffe Hospital here. Uh, where we collect information on all, all self-care people presenting with self-harm. And the prisons, some people from the prison service came to me and said, can you help us set this up in, in the prison service? So, um, you know, I'm really pleased that they've, they've continued uh, uh, doing that pretty well. Um, one of the issues in, the, in this field is um, the whole issue about prediction, risk assessment. Um, we... we, we, we you know, we continue searching for the uh, the holy grail in terms of risk assessment, uh, but it, particularly when it comes to suicide, we have to remember we're dealing with even a, in a high risk population like in prisons, we're actually t- dealing with fortunately uh, a, a low event rate, and prediction uh, of who is really at risk is quite difficult. Having said that. Uh, I think nobody would say that screening's not important. Um, so screening at the time of uh, reception um, and, and during the prison stay, not just at the time of reception, things can change. Uh, and so there may be key events, such as moving prison. There may be life events outside the prison which may change a prisoner's risk. Uh, and that, so ideally this should be an ongoing process uh, depending on the uh, circumstances. And Sina and I are involved at the moment with helping with a project in London prisons 
aimed at trying to uh, sharpen up that screening process and uh, it would be interesting to see how successful uh, uh, that is. Uh, and then, of course, there's the central importance of mental health issues, just to repeat it again. Um, uh, mental health issues in prisoners are obviously common, uh, and treating an adequate um, uh, detection and, of course, treatment of these is, has got to be a core uh, um, part of, uh, uh, of prevention. Um, this is a slide from a, a study that Sina did. Um, uh, systematic review, wasn't it, data? Is that right? I've got that, yeah. Comparing um, prevalence of various disorders in in male prisoners and the male and the male general population and female prisoners uh, and the general population. And you can see for virtually all diagnoses, I hope you can read the figures, I don't know if you can at the back, but there's there's a much higher pre- or a higher prevalence. Uh, it's particularly marked, of course, for personality disorder, which is not very surprising, and um, especially antisocial personality disorder, uh, marked for alcohol misuse and dependence, drug, drug misuse and dependence, um, and of course depression uh, is, is more common in the population, and psychosis. Intellectual disability, interestingly, little difference between the uh, prisoners and uh, the general population, uh, but higher rates of uh, PTSD, uh, and as I said, particularly in uh, female uh, prisoners than in, in, in the general population. So it's just, again, emphasise this issue. Um, so while uh, improved detection and management of psychiatric disorders in prisoners uh, really has to be a central part of uh, prevention... Unfortunately, uh, current provision of mental health care in prisons is often rather poor. Uh, And this is in spite of um, um, the sort of prison service and NHS uh, psychiatric services having sort of come together. Um, I I think uh, things are often pretty uh, inadequate. And here's a report from actually a few years ago now from the Sainsbury Centre um, about the spending on prison mental health care, which is way out of proportion downwards uh, compared to the prevalence of psychiatric disorder in the prison population when you compare with, with what's happening in the general population, where it's also inadequate, as uh, you'll have seen from uh, recent stuff in the, in the press. Okay, um, a bit more about population approaches. Um, one thing we know is that the most effective way or that's known of, of uh, reducing suicides in the general population is reducing access to means. Now, this isn't getting at the causes. Well, access to means can, can be a contributory factor in the suicidal process, uh, but it, it, we know that um, from numerous studies um, uh, in the general population that this is the most effective approach and um, uh, as I, as, um, I su- said that uh, hanging uh, and strangulation are particularly uh, common methods of uh, suicide in the, in the prison setting. Now this is not a prison setting, this is, um, uh, de- this, this is based on data for psychiatric hospitals in England and Wales and this shows the, what's happened to inpatient suicides in uh, mental health hospitals in, in, in um, England and Wales. And, and you can see there has been a huge drop uh, in, in um, suicides. This is since 2001 uh, through 2011. And uh, one thing that will have contributed to this, because this is numbers of suicides, is a decline in the psychiatric hospital population. But that isn't the whole story, because when people convert this to rates, then you still get evidence of a decline, obviously not quite as sharp as shown here. And one of the key factors, is, if you can see it down at the bottom here, is what's happened in relation to hanging or strangulation actually on the ward. A lot of these deaths, in um, uh, overall deaths in, in, patients who, uh, in patients, actually occur off the ward when people go on leave. Um, well, quite a few of them do. But these are actually hangings that have occurred in the ward setting. And you can see these have dropped from 40 here 
to just, I think it's uh, 10 in 2011. And what happened was that um, there was a general policy to make wards much safer, to cover up pipes, uh, you know, thing, any, any sorts of uh, 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 parts of the building where people could easily use, could easily use for, to hang themselves. And that seems to have been relatively uh, effective. So that sort of approach um, can, can work, uh, can help, and of course, in the prison setting now, we have um, many more what are called safer cells, um, which are made sort of as hanging proof as is possible, um, which is, is quite difficult. It needs quite a lot of imagination uh, to think of all the places you could actually uh, try and hang yourself. And you don't have to be suspended in the air to die by hanging. Um, you know, people can just put something around their neck, tie to a radiator, whatever, doorknob, and flop down and uh, it doesn't take much for people to uh, hang themselves. So um, these safer cells ha um, have all these sorts of uh, inbuilt safety measures to, to prevent those issues and undoubtedly those help a lot. I don't know what proportion of cells are safer cells, Sina. Do you know now? Because there was, you know, they're increasing the number. It's not very many still. So the they, they do tend to be very oppressive in design, also on the downside. Well, that's 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 right. I was going to say that it, you know, being one of these uh, rooms which is going to be featureless in a sense, which makes it yeah a pretty unpleasant environment. Uh, okay, um, so that's reducing access to means. Um, obviously, improving training for prison officers is very important. Improving training in terms of understanding. Oh, First of all, I think attitudes is, is, a, is a key issue here uh, in terms of people's attitudes towards individuals with mental health problems, uh, people who may be uh, at risk, may engage in self-harm, uh, improving detection of people who uh, maybe have mental health issues. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's all extremely important and being willing to provide support to such individuals. Now, unfortunately, a lot of prison officers will not see that as what they came in, into the job to do. Um, and uh, I think there's a sort of conflict between the mental health needs in prisons and what many police, uh, prison officers would see as their role, uh, particularly in current times of austerity, uh, which maybe we'll come back to if there's time for more discussion. Um, Another point to make is, uh, is that prisons, uh, we, we believe, should become uh, much more research-friendly environments. Um, uh, I mean, we, we actually had pretty good cooperation in the studies that we did. Um, I think it's become a bit less easy, actually, to do these sorts of studies now. Um, and I guess what is particularly noticeable is the gulf between you know, what people find out through research, what those implications are, and what actually is applied within the prison setting. Unfortunately, that also, ha that also happens in the general community. Um, but, you know, I think that it would help a lot if uh, prisons could be more research-friendly. What about targeted approach? What approaches? Well, Sina highlighted the um, women, uh, particularly, who are, uh, engage in repetitive self-harm, and clearly that's uh, uh, an important group to focus on. Um, uh, one thing that has happened, as Sina said, is that the, the number of self-harm episodes in women seem to have dropped quite a bit, although they've picked up a little bit again. And one reason for that was um, quite a lot of them were be, uh, women at risk were being diverted um, from going to prison to going to other settings. So you only need to, you saw that figure of uh, the 100 or it was 102 women and 17,000 self harm episodes. And you only need to move uh, a small portion of those women to another setting and you reduce the uh, amount of self harm. Whether then there is then the same amount of self harm in other settings is another question, but hopefully they receive better uh, care for their problems. Um, and obviously, you know, just. That where prisoners are, are identified as high risk, we know they're going to have, most of them will have mental health problems, and ensuring good mental health input to them is, is absolutely crucial. I've already talked about uh, 
uh, screening, but screening for mental illness is uh, uh, obviously crucial, particularly depression, PTSD. I think I think our finding on PTSD was a relatively new finding um, in terms of it, its high prevalence, particularly uh, in women, uh, and, and it's relatively easy to screen for, very easy to screen for PTSD. The other issue is around treatment of comorbidity of disorders. Um, this is one of the big challenges. Uh, you know, treating depression, straightforward depression, if I can call it that, can be relatively s- simple. But when you've got comorbidity, particularly with substance misuse and other disorders, it becomes much more complicated. Um, and then psychological treatments for those with history of, of severe trauma and abuse, and, and um, this will apply particularly to many of the uh, uh, women. Um, delivering psychological treatments in the prison setting is very difficult, and often what people will need will be fairly intensive uh, treatments of relatively long duration for these sorts of issues, issues if they're going to be effective. Uh, and that may not be terribly compatible with uh, the prison setting. Uh, and then um, treatment guidelines for uh, mental health problems uh, and so on that are prison-specific. Uh, I mentioned about screening uh, before or at, at reception, but also uh, before that, and uh, the whole issue of whether... Um, people with major mental health problems should be going to prison uh, rather than going to perhaps a forensic psychiatry setting or some other psychiatric setting where they can receive uh, more appropriate uh, uh, treatment. As I said, this may have been a factor which resulted in the uh, incidence of self-harm in uh, women having dropped quite markedly uh, recently. And then there's the whole issue of what happens when people are leaving uh, prison um, as I said, we know this is a time of high risk, so there's the whole issue around linking up uh, between prison and uh, community uh, mental health services. Um, I don't know if you can see this very well, but this is um, uh, a figure. These are, this is, these are um, figures for the uh, standardised mortality rate from all causes, but this would include a lot of suicides in various studies where... Uh, prisoners uh, were, were uh, just released, comparing them with the risk for death in the general population. And you can see they're all between two and just around eight uh, times uh, the risk, um, or three, sorry, and not, uh, two and nine times the risk of death in the general population over the sort of same exposure period. So a big risk of death on discharge. And some of this would be related particularly to drug abuse and people going back into using drugs and using too high doses and so on. But a lot of those are also uh, suicides. Now, I don't know whether you can read this at the end, but this is sort of just a summary of thinking about prevention in uh, of suicidal behaviour in prison, so pre-reception, at reception, during uh, their time in prison and on release. Um, here we've got div- diversion of offenders with severe mental illness to other settings, <coughs> screening at reception in, and uh, in first night, particularly in first night centres, um, which and then repeated screening at times of uh, perhaps changed risk, so ongoing monitoring of risk. Uh, and then various targeted approaches in relation to mental health problems. Uh, we've added in, I've added in here is what are called listeners. Uh, these are people who are especially trained to talk to prisoners, and Samaritans run a listen, Samaritans runs a listening uh, service for uh, prisoners, uh, reducing access to means. Um, and then any changes that can be made to the environment, uh, which might make it. Uh, um, less oppressive and also uh, safer. Um, anti-bullying, I haven't said much about bullying in prisons, but that's a major issue, so anti-bullying interventions. Uh, and then, of course, uh, referral to uh, prior to release, uh, ensuring that people are going to be, who are in need because of psychiatric problems are going to be picked up by community uh, health services, um, mental health services, uh, and proper resettlement and aftercare. And in terms of general con- aspects of this, 
staff training and support is crucial. Um, Evidence-based practice, uh, learning from what's happened in previous instances, learning from research, dare I underline that again, uh, and ensuring there's good information flow as people go through the system, uh, and particularly uh, around the time of uh, discharge. So, just to summarise again, mental health issues, very important, uh, that thinking about prevention, one needs to think about a combination of population strategies targeted at the whole prison population and targeted approaches focused on those who are thought to have particular needs or risk. And finally, keep um, good surveillance going and encourage research in the prison setting. Okay, so thanks very much. <laughs>